OCD2. The wizards were working in relays. Ahead of the fleet, an area of sea was mill-pond calm. From behind came a steady, unwavering breeze. The wizards were good at wind, weather being a matter not of force but of lepidoptery. As Arch-Chancellor Ridcully said, you just had to know where the damn butterflies were. And therefore some million-to-one chance must have sent the sodden log under the barge. The shock was slight, but Ponder Stibbons, who had been carefully rolling the omniscope across the deck, ended up on his back surrounded by twinkling shards. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully hurried across the deck, his voice full of concern. Is it badly damaged? That cost a hundred thousand dollars, Mr. Stibbons. Oh, look at it! A dozen pieces! Um, not badly hurt, Arch-Chancellor. Hundreds of hours of time wasted! And now we won't be able to watch the progress of the flights. Are you listening, Mr. Stibbons? Ponder wasn't. He was holding two of the shards and staring at them. I think I may have stumbled. <laughs> "'On an amazing piece of serendipity, Arch-Chancellor.' "'What so?' "'Has anyone ever broken an omniscope before, sir?' "'No, young man, and that is because other people are careful with expensive equipment.' "'Um, would you care to look in this piece, sir?' said Ponder urgently. "'I think it's very important you look at this piece, sir.' Up on the lower slopes of Corrie Celeste, it was time for old times. Ambushers and ambushees had lit a fire. So, how come you left the evil Dark Lord business, Harry? said Cohen. Well, you know how it is, said the evil Harry Dread. The horde nodded. They knew how it was these days. People these days, when they're attacking your evil Dark Tower, first thing they do is block up your escape tunnel, said evil Harry. Bastards, said Cohen. You've got to let the Dark Lord escape. Everyone knows that. That's right, said Caleb. Got to leave yourself some work for tomorrow. And it wasn't as if I didn't play fair, said Evil Harry. I mean, I always left a secret back entrance to my mountain of dread. I employed really stupid people as cell guards. That's me, said the enormous troll proudly. Yeah, what was you, right? And I always made sure all my henchmen had the kind of elements that covered the whole face, so an enterprising hero could disguise himself in one. "'And those come damn expensive, let me tell you.' "'Me and Evil Harry go way back,' said Cohen, rolling a cigarette. "'I knew him when he was starting up with just two lads and his shed of doom.' "'And Slasher, the steed of terror,' Evil Harry pointed out. "'Yeah, but he was a donkey, Harry,' Cohen pointed out. "'He had a very nasty bite on him, though. "'He'd take your finger off as soon as look at you.' "'Didn't I fight you when you were the doomed spider god?' said Caleb. "'Probably.' Everyone else did. They were great days, said Harry. Giant spiders is always reliable. Better than octopuses, even, he sighed. And then, of course, it all changed. They nodded. It had all changed. They said I was an evil stain covering the face of the world, said Harry. Not a word about bringing jobs to areas of traditionally high unemployment. And then, of course, the big boys moved in. And you can't compete with an out-of-town sight. Anyone heard of Ning the Uncompassionate? Sort of, said Boy Willie. I killed him. You couldn't have done. What was it he always said? I shall revert to this vicinity. Sort of hard to do that, 
said Boy Willie, pulling out a pipe and beginning to fill it with tobacco, when your head's nailed to a tree. Ah, but Pemdar the Witch Queen, said Evil Harry. Now, there was retired, said Cohen. She'd never retire. Got married, Cohen insisted, to Mad Amish. What? I said you married Pamdar Hamish, Cohen shouted. He-he-he, <laughs> I did that. What? That was some time ago, Mark you, said Boy Willie. I don't think it lasted. But she was a devil woman. We all get older, Harry. She runs a shop now, Pam's Pantry. Makes marmalade, said Cohen. What? She used to queen it on a throne on top of a pile of skulls. I didn't say it was very good marmalade. How about you, Cohen? said Evil Harry. I heard you were an emperor. Sounds good, doesn't it? said Cohen mournfully. But you know what? It's dull. Everyone creeping around being respectful, no one to fight, and no soft beds give you a backache. All that money and nothing to spend it on except toys. It sucks all the life right out of your civilization. It killed old Vincent the Ripper, said Boy Willie. He choked to death on a concubine. There was no sound but the hiss of snow in the fire and a number of people thinking fast. Uh, I think you mean cucumber, said the bard. That's right, cucumber, said Boy Willie. I've never been good at them long words. Very important difference in a salad situation, said Cohen. He turned back to evil Harry. That's no way for a hero to die all soft and fat and eating big dinners. A hero should die in battle. Yeah, but you lads have never got the hang of dying, evil Harry pointed out. That's because we haven't picked the right enemies, said Cohen. This time we're going to see the gods. He tapped the barrel he was sitting on and the other members of the horde winced when he did so. Got something here that belongs to them, Cohen added. He glanced around the group and noted some almost imperceptible nods. "'Why don't you come with us, Evil Harry?' he said. "'You could bring your evil henchman.' Evil Harry drew himself up. "'Hey, I'm a dark lord. How'd it look if I was to go around with a bunch of heroes?' "'It wouldn't look anything,' said Cohen sharply. "'And I'll tell you for why, shall I? We're the last, see, us and you. No one else cares. There's no more heroes, Evil Harry. No more villains, neither.' Oh, there's always villains, said Evil Harry. No, there's vicious, evil, underhand bastards, true enough, but they use laws now. They'd never call themselves Evil Harry. Men who don't know the code, said Boy Willie. Everyone nodded. You mightn't live by the law, but you had to live by the code. Men with bits of paper, said Caleb. There was another group nod. The Horde were not great readers. Paper was the enemy, and so were the men who wielded it. Paper crept around you and took over the world. We always liked you, Harry, said Cohen. You played it by the rules. How about it? Are you coming with us? Evil Harry looked embarrassed. Well, I'd like to, he said. But, well, I'm Evil Harry, right? You can't trust me an inch. First chance I get, I'll betray you all, stab you in the back or something. I'd have to, see? Of course, if it was up to me, it'd be different but I've got a reputation to think about, right? I'm Evil Harry. Don't ask me to come. Well spake, said Cohen. I like a man I can't trust. You know where you stand with an untrustworthy man. 
It's the ones you ain't never sure about who give you grief. You come with us, Harry. You're one of us. And your lads, too. New ones, I see. Cohen raised his eyebrows. Well, yeah. You know how it is with the really stupid henchmen, said Evil. Uh, this is Slime. <laughs> said Slime. Ah, one of the old stupid lizard men, said Cohen. Good to see there's one left. Oh, hey, two left. And this one is... No, no. Uh, he's slime too, said Evil Harry, patting the second lizard man gingerly to avoid the spikes. Never good at remembering more than one name, you basic lizard men. Over here we have... Uh, he nodded at something vaguely like a dwarf, who gave him an imploring look. Your armpit, prompted Evil Harry. Your armpit, said Armpit gratefully. No, no said one of the slimes, in case this remark had been addressed to him. "'Well done, Harry,' said Cohen. "'It's damn hard to find a really stupid dwarf.' "'Wasn't easy, I can tell you,' Harry admitted proudly as he moved on. "'And this is Butcher.' "'Good name, good name,' said Cohen, looking up at the enormous fat man. "'You're jailer, right?' "'Took a lot of finding,' said Evil Harry, while Butcher grinned happily at nothing. "'Believes anything anyone tells him. "'Can't see through the most ridiculous disguise.' Would let a transvestite washerwoman go free even if she had a beard you could camp in. Falls asleep really easily on a chair near the bars and carries his keys on a big hook on his belt so they can be easily lifted off, said Cohen. Classic. A master touch that. And you've got a troll, I see. That's me, said the troll. No, no, that's me. Well, you've got to have a troll, haven't you, said Evil Harry. Bit brighter than I'd like, but he's got no sense of direction and can't remember his name. And what do we have here, said Cohen? A real old zombie. Where'd you dig him up? I like a man who's not afraid to let all his flesh fall off. Gack, said the zombie. No tongue, eh, said Cohen. Don't worry, lad, a blood-curdling screech is all you need. And a few bits of wire, by the look of it. It's all a matter of style. That's me. No, no. Gack. That's me. Your armpit. They must make you proud. I don't know when I've ever seen a more stupid bunch of henchmen, said Cohen, admiring. Harry, you're like a refreshing fart in a room full of roses. You bring them all along. I wouldn't hear of you staying behind. Nice to be appreciated, said evil Harry, looking down and blushing. And what else you got to look forward to anyway, said Cohen? Who really appreciates a good dark lord these days? The world's too complicated now. It don't belong to the likes of us any more. It chokes us to death with cucumbers. What are you actually going to do, Cohen? said Evil Harry. Fnorp, fnorp. Well, I reckon it's time to go out like we started, said Cohen. One last roll of the dice. He tapped the keg again. It's time, he said, to give something back. Fnorp, fnorp. Shut up. An extract from the Journal of Leonard of Quirm. In the matter of flight through the air, I now believe that movement of the wings is impractical as yet. No, it is in the flight of the albatross and the eagle that we may see our way clear, who float so effortlessly but with the slightest tilt of a wingtip to influence the direction. The initial lift into the air may be by means of a launch from a high tower, which at other times may be used for signalling, or the raining of unquenchable fire upon enemies, or from a cliff. 
It might also be from an inclined platform, if sufficient thrust can be given by dragons or tubes of igniferous juices. Once in the air, the great bird will rise upon the currents of warm air that are constantly ascending. The helmsman reads the sky and the land below as a harbour pilot reads the surface of the sea. He will steal from the sky the means of ascension. Indeed, it is clear to me that the highest cliff of all is at the edge of the world. Once the great bird leaps from there, with such an acceleration as may be, it may alight in places on the far side of the world. When nation shall so readily reach nation, what peace shall ensue? Hmm. Memo to self, I cannot find my treatise of the structure of wings, O oh, Miss Triplet, who dusts my workshop. By you are all things consumed. At night, rays of light shone through holes and gaps in the tarpaulin. Lord Vetinari wondered if Leonard was getting any sleep. It was quite possible that the man had designed some sort of contrivance to do it for him. At the moment, there were other things to concern him. The dragons were travelling in a ship of their own. It was far too dangerous to have them on board anything else. Ships were made of wood, and even when in a good mood, dragons puffed little balls of fire. When they were overexcited, they exploded. They will be all right, won't they, he said, keeping well back from the cages. If any of them are harmed, I shall be in serious trouble with the Sunshine Sanctuary in Ankh-Morpork. This is not a prospect I relish, I assure you. Uh, Mr. De Quirm says there is no reason why they should not all get back safely, sir. And would you, Mr. Stibbons, trust yourself in a contrivance pushed along by dragons? Ponder swallowed. I'm not the stuff of, 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 of heroes, sir. And what causes this lack in you, may I ask? I think it's because I've got an active imagination. This seemed a good explanation, Lord Vetinari mused as he walked away. The difference was that while other people imagined in terms of thoughts and pictures, Leonard imagined in terms of shape and space. His daydreams came with a cutting list and assembly instructions. Lord Vetinari found himself hoping more and more for the success of his other plan. When all else fails, pray. "'All right, now, lad, settle down, settle down.' Hunon Ridcully, chief priest of blind Io, looked down at the multitude of priests and priestesses that filled the huge temple of small gods. He shared many of the characteristics of his brother Mustrum. He also saw his job as being essentially one of organiser. There were plenty of people who were good at the actual believing, and he left them to it. It took a lot more than prayer to make sure the laundry got done and the bill was kept. There were so many gods now, at least two thousand. Many were, of course, still very small, but you had to watch them. Gods were very much a fashion thing. Look at Om now. One minute he was a bloodthirsty little deity on some mad hot country, and then suddenly he was one of the top gods. It had all been done by not answering prayers, but doing so in a sort of dynamic way that left open the possibility that one day he might, and then there'd be fireworks. Hunon, who had survived through decades of intense theological dispute by being a mean man at swinging a heavy thurible, was impressed by this novel technique. And then, of course, you had your real newcomers, like 
Aniger, goddess of squashed animals. Who would have thought that better roads and faster carts would have led to that? But gods grew bigger when called upon at need, and enough minds had cried out, Oh, God, what was that I hit? Brethren, he shouted, getting tired of waiting, and Sistron. The hubbub died away. A few flakes of dry and crumbling paint drifted down from the ceiling. Thank you, said Ridcully. Now can you please listen? My colleagues and I, and here he indicated the senior clergy behind him, have, I assure you, been working for some time on this idea, and there is no doubt that it is theologically sound. Can we please get on? He could still sense the annoyance amongst the priesthood. Born leaders didn't like being led. If we don't try this, he tried, the godless wizards may succeed with their plans, and a fine lot of mugginses we will look. This is all very well, but the form of things is important, snapped a priest. We can't all pray at once. You know the gods don't like ecumenicalism. And what form of words will we use, pray? I would have felt that a short, non-controversial... Hunon Ridcully paused. In front of him were priests forbidden by holy edict from eating broccoli, priests who required unmarried girls to cover their ears lest they inflame the passions of other men, and priests who worshipped a small shortbread and raisin biscuit. Nothing was non-controversial. "'You see, it does appear that the world is going to end,' he said weakly. "'Well?' Some of us have been expecting that for some considerable time. It will be a judgment on mankind for his wickedness. And broccoli. And the short haircuts girls are wearing today. Only the biscuits will be saved. Ridcully waved his crozier frantically for silence. But this isn't the wrath of the gods, he said. I did tell you. It's the work of man. Ah, but he may be the hand of a god. "'It's Cohen the Barbarian,' said Ridcully. "'Even so he might.' The speaker in the crowd was nudged by the priest next to him. "'Hang on.' There was a roar of excited conversation. There were few temples that hadn't been robbed or despoiled in a long life of adventuring, and the priests soon agreed that no god ever had anything in his hand that looked like Cohen the Barbarian. Hunon turned his eyes up to the ceiling with its beautiful but decrepit panorama of gods and heroes. Life must be a lot easier for gods, he decided. Very well, said one of the objectors haughtily. In that case, I think perhaps we could, in these special circumstances, get around a table just this once. Ah, that is a good, Ridcully began. But, of course, we will need to give some very serious consideration as to what shape the table is going to be. Ridcully looked blank for a moment. His expression did not change as he leaned down to one of his subdeacons and said, Scallop, please have someone run along and tell my wife to pack my overnight bag, will you? I think this is going to take a little while. The central spire of Corrie Celeste seemed to get no closer day by day. "'You sure Cohen's all right in the head?' said Evil Harry as he helped boy Willie manoeuvre Hamish's wheelchair over the ice. "'Here are you trying to spread discontent among the troops, Harry?' "'Well, I did warn you, Will. I am a dark lord.' 
I've got to keep in practice. And we're following a leader who keeps forgetting where he put his false teeth. What? said Mad Hamish. I'm just saying that blowing up the gods could cause trouble, said Evil Harry. It's a bit disrespectful. You must have defiled a few temples in your time, Harry. I ran em, Will. I ran em. I was a mad demon lord for a while, you know. I had a temple of terror. Yes, on your allotment, said Boy Willie, grinning. Yes, right. That's right. Rub it in, said Harry sulkily. Just because I was never in a big league, just because... Well, now, Harry, you know we don't think like that. We respected you. You knew the code. You kept the faith. Well, Cohen just reckons the gods have got it coming to them. Now me, I'm worried because there's some tough ground ahead. Evil Harry peered along the snowy canyon. There's some kind of magic path leads up the mountain, Willie went on. But there's a mass of caves before you get there. The impassable caves of dread, said Evil Harry. Willie looked impressed. Heard of them, have you? According to some legend, they're guarded by a legion of fearsome monsters and some devilishly devious devices, and no one has ever passed through. Oh, yeah, perilous crevasses, too. Next, we'll have to swim through underwater caverns guarded by giant man-eating fish that no man has ever yet passed. And then there's some insane monks and a door you can pass only by solving some ancient riddle, the usual sort of stuff. Sounds like a big job. Evil Harry ventured. Well, we know the answer to the riddle, said Boy Willie. It's teeth. How did you find that out? Didn't have to. It's always teeth in poxy old riddles, Boy Willie grunted as they heaved the wheelchair through a particularly deep drift. But the biggest problem is going to be getting this damn thing through all that without Hamish waking up and making trouble. In the study of his dark house on the edge of time, Death looked at the wooden box. "'Perhaps I shall try one more time,' he said. He reached down and lifted up a small kitten, patted it on the head, lowered it gently into the box, and closed the lid. "'The cat dies when the air runs out.' "'I suppose it might, sir,' said Albert, his manservant, "'but I don't reckon that's the point. "'If I understand it right,' You don't know if the cat's dead or alive until you look at it. Things will have come to a pretty pass, Albert, if I did not know whether a thing was dead or alive without having to go and look. Uh, the way the theory goes, sir, it's the act of looking that determines if it's alive or not. Death looked hurt. Are you suggesting I will kill the cat just by looking at it? It's not quite like that, sir. I mean, it's not as if I make faces or anything. To be honest with you, sir, I don't think even wizards understand the uncertainty business, said Albert. We didn't chuck with that class of stuff in my day. If you weren't certain, you were dead. Death nodded. It was getting hard to keep up with the times. Take parallel dimensions. Parasite dimensions, now, he understood them. He lived in one. They were simply universes that weren't quite complete in themselves and could only exist by clinging onto a host universe. Like Remora fish. But parallel dimensions meant that anything you did, you didn't do somewhere else. This presented exquisite problems to a being who was, by nature, definite. It was like playing poker against an infinite number of opponents. He opened the box and took out the kitten. 
It stared at him with the normal mad amazement of kittens everywhere. "'I don't hold with cruelty to cats,' said Death, putting it gently on the floor. "'I think the, the whole cat-in-the-box idea is one of them metaphors,' said Albert. "'Ah, a lie,' Death snapped his fingers. Death's study did not occupy space in the normal sense of the word. The walls and ceiling were there for decoration rather than as any kind of dimensional limit. Now they faded away, and a giant hourglass filled the air. Its dimensions would be difficult to calculate, but they could be measured in miles. Inside, lightnings crackled among the falling sands. Outside, a giant turtle was engraved upon the glass. "'I think we shall have to clear the decks for this one.' said Death. Evil Harry knelt in front of a hastily constructed altar. It consisted mostly of skulls, which were not hard to find in this cruel landscape. And now he prayed. In a long lifetime of being a dark lord, even in a small way, he'd picked up a few contacts on the other planes. They were sort of gods, he supposed. They had names like Ulk Kalath the Soul Sucker, but... Frankly, the overlap between demons and gods was a bit uncertain at the best of times. "'Oh, mighty one!' he began, always a safe beginning and the religious equivalent of to whom it may concern. "'I have to warn you that a bunch of heroes are climbing the mountain to destroy you with returned fire. May you strike them with wrathful lightning and then look favourably upon thy servant, i.e. evil Harry Dread.' Mail may be left with Mrs. Gibbons, Twelve, Dolman View, Pantygirdle, Chlamydos. Also, if possible, I should like a location with real lava pits. Every other evil lord manages to get a dread lava pit, even when they are on 100 feet of bloody alluvial soil. Excuse me. This is further discrimination against the small trader, no offence meant. He waited a moment, just in case there was any reply, sighed, and got rather shakily to his feet. "'I'm an evil, distrustful Dark Lord,' he said. "'What do they expect?' "'I told them. I warned them. "'I mean, if it was up to me. "'But where would I stand as a Dark Lord if I—' "'His eye caught something pink a little way off. "'He climbed a snow rock for a better look. Two minutes later, the rest of the horde had joined him "'and were looking at the scene reflectively, "'although the minstrel was being sick. "'Well, that's what I often see,' said Cohen. "'What, a man throttled with pink knitting wool?' said Caleb. "'No, I was looking at the other two. "'Yes, it's amazing what you can do with a knitting needle,' said Cohen. "'He glanced back at the makeshift altar and grinned. "'Did you do this, Harry? You said you wanted to be alone.' "'Pink knitting wool?' said evil Harry nervously. "'Me and pink knitting wool?' "'Sorry for suggesting it,' said Cohen. "'Well, we ain't got time for this. "'Let's go and sort out the Caves of Dread. "'A bard.' Right, stop throwing up and get your notebook out. First man to be cut in half by a concealed blade is a rotten egg, OK? And, everyone, try not to wake up Amish, all right? The sea was full of cool green light. Captain Carrot sat near the prow. To the astonishment of Wind, who'd got out for a gloomy evening walk, he was sewing. It's a badge for the mission, said Carrot. See, this is yours, he held it up. "'But what's it for?' "'Morale!' "'Oh, that stuff,' said Rincewind. "'Well, you've got lots. "'Leonard doesn't need it, and I've never had any.' "'I know you are being good-humoured about it, "'but I think it's vital that there is something "'that holds the crew together,' "'said Carrot, still calmly sewing. 
Yes, it's called skin. It's important to keep all of you on the inside of it. Rincewind stared at the badge. He'd never had one before. Well, that was technically a lie. He'd had one that said, Hello, I am five today, which was just about the worst possible present to get when you were six. That birthday had been the rottenest day of his life. It needs an uplifting motto, said Carrot. Wizards know about this sort of thing, don't they? How about Moritori Nolumus Mori? That's got the right ring, said Rincewind gloomily. Carrot's lips moved as he parsed the sentence. We are about to die, he said, but I don't recognise the rest. It's very uplifting, said Rincewind. It's straight from the heart. Very well, many thanks. I'll get to work on it right away, said Carrot. Rincewind sighed. You're finding this exciting, aren't you? he said. You actually are. It will certainly be a challenge to go where no one has gone before, said Carrot. Wrong. We're going where no one has come back from before, Rincewind hesitated. Well, except me. But I didn't go that far, and I sort of dropped onto the disc again. Yes, they told me about it. What did you see? My old life passing in front of my eyes. Perhaps we shall see something more interesting. Rincewind glared at Carrot, bent once again over his sewing. Everything about the man was neat, in a workmanlike sort of way. He looked like someone who washed thoroughly. He also seemed to Rincewind to be a complete idiot with gristle between the ears. But complete idiots didn't make comments like that. "'I'm taking an iconograph and lots of paint for the imp. You know the wizards want us to make all kinds of observations,' Carrot went on. "'They say it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.' "'You're not making any friends here, you know,' said Rincewind. "'Have you any idea what it is that the Silver Horde wants?' Uh, "'Drink, treasure and women,' said Rincewind. "'But I think they may have eased back on the last one.' "'But didn't they have more or less all of that anyway?' Rincewind nodded. "'That was the puzzler. The Horde had it all. "'They had everything that money could buy, "'and since there was a lot of money on the counterweight continent, "'that was everything.' It occurred to him that when you'd had everything, all that was left was nothing. The valley was full of cool green light, reflected off the towering ice of the central mountain. It shifted and flowed like water. Into it, grumbling and asking one another to speak up, walked the silver horde. Behind them, walking almost bent double with horror and dread, white-faced like a man who has gazed upon direful things, came the minstrel. His clothes were torn. One leg of his tights had been ripped off. He was soaking wet, although parts of his clothing were singed. The twanging remains of the lute in his trembling hand had been half bitten away. Here was a man who had truly seen life, mostly on the point of departure. "'Not very insane as monks go,' said Caleb. "'More sad than mad. I've known monks that frothed.' "'And some of these monsters were long past their date with the Nackerman, "'and that's the truth,' said Truckle. "'Honestly, I felt embarrassed about killing them. "'They was older than us.' "'The fish were good,' said Cohen. "'Real big baggers.' "'Just as well, really, since we've run out of walrus,' said Evil Harry. "'Wonderful display by your henchman, Harry,' said Cohen. "'Stupidity wasn't the word for it. "'Never seen so many people hit themselves over the head with their own swords.' "'They were good lads,' said Harry. "'Morons to the end.' Cohen grinned at Boy Willie, who was sucking a cut finger. "'Teeth,' he said. "'Ha! The answer is always teeth, is it?' "'Well, all right, all right. Sometimes it's tongue. 
said Boy Willie. He turned to the minstrel. Did you get that bit where I cut up that big tarantula? he said. The minstrel raised his head slowly. A lute string broke. He bleated. The rest of the horde gathered around quickly. There was no sense in letting just one of them get the best verses. Remember to sing about that bit where the fish swallowed me and I cut my way out from inside, okay? And did you get that bit when I killed that big six-armed dancing statue? What are you talking about? It was me what killed that statue. Yeah, well, I clove him clean in twain, mate. No one could have survived that. Why didn't you just cut his head off? Couldn't somebody already done that? Here, he's not writing this down. Why isn't he writing this down? Cohen, you tell him he's got to write this down. Let him be for a while, said Cohen. I reckon the fish disagreed with him. I don't see why, said Truckle. I pulled him out before it hardly chewed him. And he must have dried out nicely in that corridor. You know, the one where the flames shot up out the floor unexpectedly. I reckon our bard wasn't expecting flames to shoot out the floor unexpectedly, said Cohen. Truckle shrugged theatrically. Well, if you're not going to expect unexpected flames, what's the point of going anywhere? And we'd have been in some strife with those gate demons from the nether worlds if Mad Amish hadn't woken up, Cohen went on. Hamish stirred in his wheelchair under a pile of large fish fillets, inexpertly wrapped in saffron robes. What? I said, you were grouchy, what with missing your nap, Cohen shouted. Ah, right. Boy Willie rubbed his thigh. I got to admit it, one of those monsters nearly got me, he said. I'm going to have to give this up. Cohen turned around quickly. And die like old, old Vincent, he said. Well, not... Where would he have been if we weren't there to give him a proper funeral, eh? A great big bonfire, that's the funeral of a hero. And everyone else said it was a waste of a good boat. So stop talking like that and follow me. The minstrel sang, and finally the words came out. Mad, mad, you're, you're all stark staring mad. Caleb patted him gently on the shoulder as they turned to follow their leader. We prefer the word berserk, lad, he said. Some things needed testing. I have watched the swamp dragons at night, Leonard said conversationally as Ponder Stibbons adjusted the static firing mechanism, and it is clear to me that the flame is quite useful to them as a means of propulsion. In a sense, a swamp dragon is a living rocket. A strange creature to have come into being on a world like ours, I have always thought. I suspect they come from elsewhere. But I tend to explode a lot said Ponder, standing back. The dragon in the steel cage watched him carefully. "'Bad diet,' said Leonard firmly. "'Possibly not what they were used to. "'But I am sure the mixture I have devised "'is both nourishing and safe, "'and will have usable effect. Uh, "'But we will go and get behind the sandbags now, sir,' said Ponder. "'Oh, do you, do you really think—' uh, "'Yes, uh, sir.' With his back firmly against the sandbags, Ponder shut his eyes and pulled the string. In front of the dragon's cage, a mirror swung down just for a moment, and the first reaction of a male swamp dragon on seeing another male is to flame. There was a roar. The two men peered over the barrier and saw a yellow-green lance of fire thundering out across the evening sea. Thirty-three seconds,' said Ponder, when it finally winked out. He leapt up. The small dragon belched. From the Journal of Leonard of Quirm, 
some observations on Draco vulgaris, common swamp dragon. The creature's body shape is lumpy, its posture low and hopeless. Its beard and thrips are unkempt, and its squales almost non-existent. The dragon's wings are effectively useless, except in a glide, and its eggs badly constructed. The flame was more or less gone, so it was the dampest explosion Ponder had ever experienced. Ah, said Leonard, arising from behind the sandbags and peeling a piece of scaly skin off his head. "'Nearly there, I think. Just a pinch more charcoal and seaweed extract to prevent blowback.' Ponder removed his hat. What he needed right now, he felt, was a bath. And then another bath. "'I'm not exactly a rocket wizard, am I?' he said, wiping bits of dragon off his face. But an hour later another flame lanced over the waves, thin and white with a blue core, and this time, this time... The dragon merely smiled. "'I'd rather die than sign my name,' said Boy Willie. "'I'd rather face a dragon,' said Caleb. "'One of the proper old ones, too, not the little fireworky ones you get today.' "'Once they get you signing your name, they've got you where they want you,' said Cohen. "'Too many letters,' said Truckle. "'All different shapes, too. I always put an X.' The horde had stopped for a breather and a smoke on an outcrop at the end of the green valley. Snow was thick on the ground, but the air was almost mild. Already there was the prickly sensation of a high magical field. "'Reading now,' said Cohen. "'That's another matter. I don't mind a man who does a bit of reading. Now, if you come across a map as it might be, and it's got a big cross on it, well, a reading man can tell something from that.' "'What, that it's Truckle's map?' said Boy Willie. Exactly. Could very well be. I can read and write, said Evil Harry. Sorry, part of the job. Etiquette too. You've got to be polite to people when you march them out on a plank over the shark tank. It makes it more evil. No one's blaming you, Harry, said Cohen. Huh. Not that I could get sharks, said Harry. I should have known better when Johnny Nohans told me they were sharks that hadn't grown all their fins yet, but all they did was swim around squeaking happily and start begging for fish. When I throw people into a torture tank, it's to be torn to bits, not to get in touch with their inner self and be one with the cosmos. Shark would be better than this fish, said Caleb, making a face. Nah, shark tastes like piss, said Cohen. He sniffed. Now that, now that said Truckle, is what I call cookery. They followed the smell through a maze of rocks to a cave. To the minstrel's amazement, each man drew his sword as they approached. You can't trust cookery, said Cohen, apparently as an attempt at an explanation. But you, you, you've just been fighting monstrous mad devil fish, said the minstrel. Nah, the priests were mad. The fish were, well, hard to tell with fish. Anyway, you know where you stand with a mad priest, but someone cooking as well as that right up here, well, that's a mystery. Well, mysteries get you killed. You're not dead, though. Cohen's sword swished through the air. The minstrels thought he heard it sizzle. I solve mysteries, he said. Oh, with your sword, like Carolinus untied the Tsortian knot. Don't know anything about any knots, lad. In a clear space among the rocks, a stew was cooking over a fire, and an elderly lady was working at her embroidery. 
It was not a scene the minstrel would have expected out here, even though the lady was somewhat youngly dressed for a grandmother, and the message on the sampler she was sewing, surrounded by little flowers, was, Eat cold steel pig dog. Well, well, said Cohen, sheathing his sword. I thought I recognised the handiwork back there. How you doing, Fina? You're looking well, Cohen, said the woman, as calmly as though she had been expecting them. You boys want some stew? Yeah, said Truckle, grinning. Let the bard try it first, though. Shame on you, Truckle, said the woman, putting aside her embroidery. Well, you did drug me and steal a load of jewels off me last time we met. That was forty years ago, man. Anyway, you left me alone to fight that band of goblins. I knew you'd beat the goblins, though. I knew you didn't need the jewels. Morning, evil Harry. Hello, boys. Pull up a rock. Who's the thin streak of misery? Uh, this is the bard, said Cohen. Bard, this is Vina, the raven Ed. What? said the bard. No, she's not. Even I've heard of Vina the Raven Head, and she's a tall young woman with... Oh. Vina sighed. Yeah, the old stories do hang around so, don't they? She said, patting her grey hair. And it's Mrs McGarry now, boys. Yeah, I heard you'd settle down, said Cohen, dipping the ladle into the stew and tasting it. Married an innkeeper, didn't you? Hung up your sword, had kids. Grandchildren, said Mrs McGarry proudly. But then the proud smile faded. One of them's taken over the inn, but the other's a papermaker. Running an inn's a good trade, said Cohen, but there's not much heroing in wholesale stationery. A paper cut's just not the same. He smacked his lips. This is good stuff, girl. It's funny, said Vina. I never knew I had the talent, but people will come miles from my dumplings. No change there, then, said Truckle the Uncivil. Ha, <laughs> Truckle, said Cohen, remember when you told me to tell you when you were being too uncivil? Yeah. That was one of those times. Anyway, said Mrs McGarry, smiling sweetly at the blushing Truckle, I was sitting around after Charlie died and I thought, well, is this it? I've just got to wait for the Grim Reaper. And then there was this scroll. What scroll? said Cohen and Evil Harry together. They stared at one another. You see said Cohen, reaching into his pack. I found this old scroll showing a map of how to get to the mountains and all the little tricks for getting past. Me too, said Harry. You never told me. I'm a dark lord, Cohen, said evil Harry patiently. I'm not supposed to be Captain Helpful. Tell me where you found it, at least. Oh, in some ancient sealed tomb we was despoiling. I found mine in an old storeroom back in the Empire, said Cohen. "'Mine was left in the inn by a traveller all in black,' said Mrs McGarry. "'In the silence, the minstrel said, "'Um, excuse me.' "'What?' said all three together. "'Is it just me?' said the minstrel. "'Or are we missing something here?' "'Like what?' demanded Cohen. "'Well, these scrolls all tell you how to get to the mountains, "'a perilous trek that no one has ever survived. "'Yeah, so?' So, um, who wrote the scrolls? A few of the Discworld gods were passing the time as they do. Gathered around a large playing board were Sesifet, goddess of the afternoon, Offler, the crocodile-headed, Flatulus, god of the winds, Fate, Eureka, goddess of the saunas, snow, and theatrical performances for fewer than 120 people, Blind Io, Chief of the Gods and General Thundering, 
Libertina, goddess of the sea, apple pie, certain types of ice cream and short lengths of string. The lady, don't even ask. Bibulus, god of wine and things on sticks. Patina, goddess of wisdom. Tapaxi, god of certain mushrooms and also of great ideas that you forgot to write down and will never remember again, and of people who tell other people that dog is god spelled backwards and think this is in some way revelatory. Bast, god of things left on the doorstep or half-digested under the bed, and Nuggan, a local god but also in charge of paperclips, correct things in the right place in small desk stationery sets, and unnecessary paperwork. Offler, the crocodile, looked up from the playing board, which was in fact the world. All right, who doth he belong to? he lisped. We've got a clever one there. There was a general craning of necks among the assembled deities, and then one put up his hand. And you are? Ah, uh, the almighty Nuggan, I'm worshipped in parts of Boragravia. The young man was raised in my faith. What do Nugganites believe in? Er, uh, me. Mostly me. And followers are forbidden to eat chocolate, ginger, mushrooms and garlic. Several of the gods winced. When you prohibit, you don't meth about, do you? said Offler. No sense in forbidding broccoli, is there? That sort of approach is very old-fashioned, said Nuggan. He looked at the minstrel. He's never been particularly bright up till now. Shall I smite him? There's bound to be some garlic in that stew. Mrs. McGarry looks the type. Offler hesitated. He was a very old god who had arisen from steaming swamps in hot, dark lands. He had survived the rise and fall of more modern and certainly more beautiful gods by developing, for a god, a certain amount of wisdom. Besides, Nuggan was one of the newer gods, all full of hell-fire and self-importance and ambition. Offler was not bright, but he had some vague inkling that for long-term survival gods needed to offer their worshippers something more than a mere lack of thunderbolts and he felt an ungodlike pang of sympathy for any human whose god banned chocolate and garlic. Anyway, Nuggan had an unpleasant moustache. No god had any business with a fussy little moustache like that. No, he said, shaking the dice box. It'll add to the fun. Cohen pinched out the end of his ragged cigarette, stuffed it behind his ear, and looked up at the green ice. It's not too late to turn back, said Evil Harry, if anyone wanted to, I mean. Yes, it is, said Cohen, without looking round. Besides, someone's not plain fair. Funny, really, said Vina. All my life I've done adventuring with old maps found in old tombs and so on, and I never ever worried about where they came from. It's one of those things you never think about, like who leaves all the weapons and keys and medicine kits lying around in the unexplored dungeons. Someone be setting a trap said Boy Willie. Probably. Won't be the first trap I've walked into, said Cohen. We're going up against the gods, Cohen, said Harry. A man does that. A man's got to be sure of his luck. Mine's worked up to now, said Cohen. He reached out and touched the rock face in front of him. It's warm. But it's got ice on, said Harry. Yeah, strange, eh, said Cohen. It's just like the scroll said. And see the way the snow's sticking to it? It's the magic. Well, here goes. 
An extract from the Journal of Leonard de Quirm, Testing the Handiwork of the Gods. It being apparent that a voyage into the great void will result in much stress upon the human frame, I have devised this device of three rings that rotate continuously in three planes, giving the voyager the feeling of being rotated continuously in three planes. It is vital to know if the human body, or, or at least that of the wizard Rincewind, can withstand such treatment. Extract the second, the circulation of the vomit. The wizard Rincewind reports a feeling of lightness occasioned by his stomach contents leaving his body and the wax running out of his ears. Prolonged tumbling on the device causes him to experience the feeling of wishing to kill everyone beginning, against all common sense, with himself. He also issues screams and threats. From this I deduce that being tumbled in three directions at once has a deleterious effect, and I will arrange for this not to happen on the voyage. The musculature of the wizard Rincewind would make an interesting study if, indeed, he had any. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully decided that the crew needed to be trained. Ponder Stibbons pointed out that they were going into the completely unexpected, and Ridcully ruled, therefore, that they should be given some unexpected training. Rincewind, on the other hand, said that they were heading for certain death, which everyone managed eventually with no training whatsoever. Later, he said that Leonard's device would do, though. After five minutes on it, certain death seemed like a release. "'He's thrown up again,' said the Dean. "'He's getting better at it, though,' said the Chair of Indefinite Studies." "'How can you say that? Last time it was a whole ten seconds before he let go.' "'Yes, but he's throwing up more and it's going further,' said the chair as they strolled away. The dean looked up. It was hard to see the flying device in the shadows of the tarpaulin-covered barge. Sheets were spread over the more interesting bits. There were strong smells of glue and varnish. The librarian, who tended to get involved in things, was hanging peacefully from a spar and hammering wooden pegs into a plank.' "'It'll be balloons, you mark my word,' said the dean. "'I've got a mental picture, balloons and sails and rigging and so on. "'Probably an anchor, too. Fanciful stuff.' "'Over in the Agatean Empire they have kites big enough to carry men,' said the chair. "'Perhaps he's just building a bigger kite, then.' "'In the distance, Leonard of Querm was sitting in a pool of light, sketching. "'Occasionally he'd hand a page to a waiting apprentice who would hurry away.' "'Did you see the design he came up with yesterday?' the dean. "'Had this idea that they might have to get outside the machine to repair it. "'So, so he designed a sort of device to let you fly round with a dragon on your back. "'Said it was for emergencies.' "'What kind of emergency would be worse than having a dragon strapped to your back?' "'said the chair of indefinite studies. "'Exactly. The man lives in an ivory tower.' "'Does he? I thought Veterinari had him locked up in some attic.' "'Well, I mean, years of that is going to give a man a very limited vision, in my humble opinion. "'Nothing much to do but tick the days off on the wall.' "'They say he paints good pictures,' said the chair. "'Well, pictures,' said the dean dismissively. "'But they say his are so good the eyes follow you round the room.' "'Really? What does the rest of the face do?' "'That stays where it is, I suppose,' said the chair of indefinite studies.' "'To me, this does not sound good. 
said the dean as they wandered out into the daylight. At his desk, while considering the problem of steering a craft in thin air, Leonard carefully drew a rose. Evil Harry shut his eyes. "'This does not feel good,' he said. "'It's easy when you get used to it,' said Cohen. "'It's just a matter of how you look at things.' Evil Harry opened his eyes again. He was standing on a broad greenish plain, which curved down gently to right and left. It was like being on a high grassy ridge. It stretched off into a cloudy distance. "'It's just a stroll,' said Boy Willie beside him. "'Look, my feet aren't a problem here,' said Evil Harry. "'My feet aren't quarrelling, it's my brain.' "'It helps if you think of the ground as being behind you,' said Boy Willie. "'No,' said Evil Harry, "'it doesn't.' "'The strange feature of the mountain was this. "'Once a foot was set on it, "'direction became a matter of personal choice. "'To put it another way, gravity was optional. "'It stayed under your feet, "'no matter which way your feet were pointing. "'Evil Harry wondered why it was affecting only him. "'The horde seemed entirely unmoved.' Even Mad Hamish's horrible wheelchair was bowling along happily in a direction which, up until now, Harry had thought of as vertical. It was, he thought, probably because evil lords were generally brighter than heroes. You needed some functioning brain cells to do the payroll even for half a dozen henchmen. And evil Harry's brain cells were telling him to look straight ahead and try to believe that he was strolling along a broad, happy ridge, and on no account to turn around, to even think about turning around, because behind him was... Steady on, said Boy Willie, steadying his arm. Listen to your feet. They know what they're about. To Harry's horror, Cohen chose this moment to turn around. "'Will you look at that view?' he said. "'I can see everybody's house from up here.' "'No, oh no, please no,' mumbled Evil Harry, "'flinging himself forward and holding on to the mountain. "'It's great, isn't it?' said Truckle. "'Seeing all them seas sort of hanging right over you like... Uh, "'What's up with Harry?' "'Just a bit poorly,' said Vina. "'To Cohen's surprise, the minstrels seemed quite at home with the view.' "'I come from up in the mountains,' he explained. "'You get a head for heights up there.' "'I've been to everywhere I can see,' said Cohen, looking around. "'Been there, done that. "'Been there again, done it twice. "'Nowhere left where I ain't been.' "'The minstrel looked him up and down, "'and a kind of understanding dawned. "'I know why you are doing this now,' he thought. "'Thank goodness for a classical education. "'Now, what was the quote?' "'And Carolinus wept.' "'for there were no more worlds to conquer,' he said. "'Who's that bloke? You mentioned him before,' said Cohen. "'You haven't heard of the Emperor Carolinus?' "'No.' "'But he was the greatest conqueror that ever lived. "'His empire spanned the entire disc, "'except for the Countuint continent and 4X, of course.' "'I don't blame him. "'You can't get a good beer in one of them for love nor money, "'and the others a bugger to get to.' "'Well, when he got as far as the coast of Muntab,' It was said that he stood on the shore and wept. Some philosopher told him there were more worlds out there somewhere and that he'd never be able to conquer them. Um, that reminded me a bit of you. Cohen strolled along in silence for a moment. Yeah, he said at last. Yeah, I could see how it could be. Only not a sissy, obviously. Uh, it is now, said Ponder Stibbons, T uh, minus twelve hours. His audience, sitting on the deck, watched him with alert and polite incomprehension. 
Uh, that means the flying machine will go over the edge just before dawn tomorrow, Ponder explained. Everyone turned to Leonard, who was watching a seagull. Uh, Mr. De Quirm, said Lord Vetinari. What? Oh, yes. Leonard blinked. Yes, the device will be ready, although the privy is giving me problems. The lecturer in recent runes fumbled in the capacious pockets of his robes. Oh, dear, I believe I have a bottle of something. The sea always affects me that way, too. I'm just rather thinking of problems associated with the thin air and low gravity, said Leonard. That's what the survivor of the Maria Pesto reported. But this afternoon I feel I can come up with a privy that happily utilises the thinner air of altitude to achieve the effect normally associated with gravity. Gentle suction is involved. Ponder nodded. He had a quick mind when it came to mechanical detail, and he'd already formed a mental picture. Now a mental eraser would be useful. Ah, uh, good, he said. Well, most of the ships will fall behind the barge during the night. Even with magically assisted wind, we dare not venture closer than thirty miles to the rim. After that we could be caught in the current and swept over the edge. Rincewind, who had been leaning moodily over the rail and watching the water, turned at this. "'How far are we from the island of Krull?' he said. "'That place? Hundreds of miles,' said Ponder. "'We want to keep well away from those pirates.' "'So we'll run straight into the circumfence, then?' There was technically silence, although it was loud with unspoken thoughts. Each man was busy trying to think of a reason why it would have been far too much to expect him to have thought of this, while at the same time being a reason why someone else should have. The circumfence was the biggest construction ever built. It extended almost a third of the way around the world. On the large island of Kroll, an entire civilization lived on what they recovered from it. They ate a lot of sushi, and their dislike for the rest of the world was put down to permanent dyspepsia. In his chair, Lord Vetinari grinned in a thin, acid way. "'Yes, indeed,' he said. "'It extends for several thousands of miles, I understand. "'However, I gather the Krullians no longer keep captive seamen as slaves. "'They simply charge ruinous salvage rates.' "'A few fireballs would blow the thing apart,' said Ridcully. "'That does rather require you to be very close to it, though,' said Lord Vetinari. That is to say, so close to the rim fall that you would be destroying the very thing that is preventing you from being swept over the edge. A knotty problem, gentlemen. Magic carpet, said Ridcully. Just the job. We've got one in. Uh, not that close to the edge, sir, said Ponder dismally. The thalmic field is very thin, and there are some ferocious air currents. There was the crisp rattle of a big drawing pad being turned to the next page. "'Oh, yes,' said Leonard, more or less to himself. "'Pardon me,' said the patrician. "'I did once design a simple means whereby entire fleets could be destroyed quite easily, my lord, only as a technical exercise, of course. "'But with numbered parts and a list of instructions,' said the patrician. "'Why, yes, my lord, of course. Otherwise it would not be a proper exercise.' "'and I feel sure that with the help of these magical gentlemen "'we should be able to adapt it for this purpose.' "'He gave them a bright smile. "'They looked at his drawing. "'Men were leaping from ships in flames into a boiling sea. 
"'You do this sort of thing as a hobby, do you?' said the dean. "'No, oh, yes. There are no practical applications.' "'But couldn't someone build something like that?' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'You practically include glue and transfers.' "'Well, I dare say there are people like that,' said Leonard diffidently. "'But I'm sure the government would put a stop to things before they went too far.' And the smile on Lord Vetinari's face was one that probably even Leonard of Quirm, with all his genius, would never be able to capture on canvas. Very carefully, knowing that if they dropped one they probably wouldn't even know they'd dropped one, a team of students and apprentices lifted the cages of dragons into the racks under the rear of the flying machine. Occasionally one of the dragons hiccuped. Everyone present, bar one, would freeze. The exception was Rincewind, who would be crouched down behind a pile of timber many yards away. "'They've all been well-fed on Leonard's special feed and should be quite docile for four or five hours,' said Ponder, pulling him out for the third time. "'The first two stages were given their meals with a carefully timed interval, and the first lot should be in a mood to flame just as you go over the rimfall. "'What have we delayed?' Ponder gave this some deep thought. "'Whatever you do, don't be delayed,' he said. "'Thank you. Now, "'The ones that you'll be taking with you in flight may need feeding too. "'We've loaded a mixture of naphtha, rock oil and anthracite dust. "'For me to feed to the dragons. Yes. "'In this wooden ship, which will be very, very high? "'Well, in a technical sense, yes. "'Could we focus on that technicality?' Strictly speaking, there won't be any down as such. Um, you could say that you will be travelling so fast that you won't be in any one place long enough to fall down. Ponder sought a glimmer of understanding in Rincewind's face. Or, to put it another way, you'll be falling permanently without ever hitting the ground. Up above them, rack on rack of dragons sizzled contentedly. Wisps of steam drifted through the shadows. Oh, said Rincewind. You understand? said Ponder. No. I was just hoping that if I didn't say anything, you'd stop trying to explain things to me. How are we doing, Mr. Stibbons? said the Arch-Chancellor, strolling up at the head of his wizards. How's our enormous kite? Everything's going to plan, sir. We're at T minus five hours, sir. Really? Good. We're at supper in ten minutes. Rincewind had a small cabin with cold water and running rats. Most of it that wasn't occupied by his bunk was occupied by his luggage. The luggage. It was a box that walked around on hundreds of little legs. It was magical as far as he knew. He'd had it for years. It understood every word he said. It obeyed about one in every hundred, unfortunately. There won't be any room, he said, and you know every time you've gone up in the air you've got lost. The luggage watched him in its eyeless way. "'So you stay with nice Mr. Stibbons, all right? "'You've never been at ease around gods either. "'I shall be back very soon.' "'Still the eyeless stare went on. "'Just don't look at me that way, will you?' said Rincewind. "'Lord Vetinari cast his eye over the three... Hmm, "'What was the word? "'Men,' he said, settling for one that was undoubtedly correct.' It falls to me to congratulate you on, um, on... He hesitated. Lord Vetinari was not a man who delighted in the technical. 
There were two cultures as far as he was concerned. One was the real one. The other was occupied by people who liked machinery and ate pizza at unreasonable hours. On being the first people to leave the disc with the resolute intention of returning to it, he went on. Your mission is to land on or near Corrie Celeste, locate Cohen the Barbarian and his men, and by whatever means feasible stop this ridiculous scheme of theirs. There must be some misunderstanding. Even barbarian heroes generally draw the line at blowing up the world, he sighed. They're usually not civilised enough for that, he added. Anyway... We implore him to listen to reason, etc. Barbarians are generally sentimentalists. Tell him about all the dear little puppies that we killed or something. Beyond that, I can't advise you further. I suspect classical force is out of the question. If Cohen was easy to kill, people would have done it a long time ago. Captain Carrot saluted. Force is always the last resort, sir, he said. I believe that for Cohen it's the first choice said Lord Vetinari. "'He's not too bad if you don't come up behind him suddenly,' said Rincewind. "'Ah, there is the voice of our mission specialist,' said the patrician. "'I just hope—what is that on your badge, Captain Carrot?' "'Mission motto, sir,' said Carrot cheerfully. "'Moritori nolimus mori. Rincewind suggested it.' "'I imagine he did,' said Lord Vetinari, observing the wizard coldly. "'And would you care to give us a colloquial translation, Mr. Rincewind?' "'Er,' uh, Rincewind hesitated, but there was really no escape. "'Um, roughly speaking, it means we who are about to die don't want to, sir.' "'Very clearly expressed, I commend your determination. "'Yes?' Ponder had whispered something in his ear. "'Ah, I'm informed that we have to leave you shortly.' said Lord Vetinari. Mr. Stibbons tells me that there is a means of keeping in touch with you, at least until you're close to the mountain. Yes, sir, said Carrot. The fractured omniscope, an amazing device. Each part sees what the other parts sees. Astonishing. Well, I trust your new careers will be uplifting, if not <laughs> meteoric. To your places, gentlemen. Uh, "'I just want to take an iconograph, sir,' said Ponder, hurrying forward and clutching a large box, "'to record the moment. "'If you would all stand in front of the flag and smile, please. Uh, "'That means the corners of your mouth go up, Rincewind. Thank you.' Ponder, like all bad photographers, took the shot just a fraction of a second after the smiles had frozen. "'And do you have any last words?' "'Do you mean last words before we go and come back?' said Carrot, his brow wrinkling. "'Oh, yes, uh, of course, uh, that's what I meant. Uh, "'Because, of course, you will be coming back, won't you?' "'said Ponder, far too quickly, in Rincewind's opinion. "'I have absolute confidence in Mr. De Quirm's work, "'and I'm sure he has too.' "'Oh, dear, no, I, I never bothered to have any confidence,' said Leonard. "'You don't?' "'No, uh, things just work. "'You don't have to wish,' said Leonard. "'And, of course, if we do fail, "'then things won't be that bad, will they?' "'If we fail to come back, there won't be anywhere left to fail to come back to in any case, will there? "'So it will all cancel out.' "'He gave his happy little smile. "'Logic is a great comfort in times like this, I always find.' "'Personally,' said Captain Carrot, "'I am happy, thrilled, and delighted to be going.' "'He tapped a box by his side. 
and I am, as instructed, also bringing along an iconograph, and intend to take many useful and deeply moving images of our world from the perspective of space, which will perhaps cause us to see humanity in an entirely new light. Uh, is this the time to resign from the crew? said Rincewind, staring at his fellow voyagers. No, said Lord Vetinari. Uh, possibly on grounds of insanity. Your own, I assume? Take your pick. Vetinari beckoned Rincewind forward. But it could be said that someone would have to be insane to take part in this venture, he murmured. In which case, of course, you are fully qualified. Then, supposing I'm not insane? Oh, as ruler of Ankh-Morpork, I have a duty to send only the keenest, coolest minds on a vital errand of this kind. He held Rincewind's gaze for a moment. "'I think there's a catch there,' said the wizard, knowing that he'd lost. "'Yes, the best kind there is,' said the patrician. End of CD 2